So how can we actually make sure that we consistently uncover issues on a website? How do we make sure that we deliver consistent value for the companies that we're working with? That's how the idea of FigPi was born. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is your host, Robin Copernicus. And on today's show, we have DJ Khalid. He literally wanted me to introduce him like that, so I would. But we have the founder, Khalid Sala, who is the founder of FigPi, which is changing the game in terms of how people are A-B testing websites and looking at the customer interaction between a website so you can improve performance and improve conversions. Khalid, what's up? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be with you. Yes. For those that don't know much about you and they're still learning about FigPi, please tell us a little bit about a little bit about your journey and how you came to the inspiration to create FigPi. Oh man, long, long story, <laughs> long story. It started back in 2005. If you would, if we would go back that far, software architects basically have gone through finishing computer science, going through the journey, graduating, working as software engineer, senior engineer, and then eventually software architect, running a project for Motorola at that point in time. It was my dream to run that project because it was three of us who were running it, three software architects. We had, oh, I forgot how many engineers, over 100 between the US and India. $50 million, $35 million, that's the cost of the, the project within three months. Of that, I think software was $35 million, $50 million for ser servers and hardware. And basically, as software architects, we got to choose whatever we want to do. Long story short, we launched the website after three months, and there were so many people who came to the site. And basically, the site crashed within the first couple of hours, although we've had 16 servers. I'm like, okay, we can figure this out. We brought back the servers back up. And for about a month, millions of visitors would come to the website and no one would place an order. My wife at that point in time was just looking for something. And I'm like, you know what? You probably should look into helping companies improve conversion rates. And now, again, this is 2005, 2006. No one knew of that. That's when we started a consulting business, very focused on basically helping companies improve conversion rates. The software itch is, is within me. I cannot just drop it. So I'm like, hey, the problem with consulting is it really depends on the consultant that you're working with, correct? You get an amazing consultant and you absolutely get amazing results. But if the consultant had a bad day, he or she fought with their significant other, stayed up at night, you don't get the same quality. That's when slowly I'm like, okay, so how can we actually make sure that we consistently uncover issues on a website? How do we make sure that we deliver consistent value for the companies that we're working with? That's how the idea of FigPi was born. FigPi, we actually launched it initially for our own um, customers back in 2012 internally. And we kept it internal for about six, seven years until January of last year when a couple of our larger clients, they said, hey guys, what we don't understand is you have this amazing software. We've been using it for years. Why don't you launch it publicly? And I'm like, I don't know why, because it was just initially it was supposed to be something internal. So it went public. It was beginning of February, 2020. An interesting timing with COVID and all that. Yeah, when, especially when a lot of the focus and attention has gone to online companies, you see this big boom with drop shipping websites, e-commerce websites, and it's all about increasing these conversion rates because ad prices are only going up and you have to be able to increase 
increase these conversion rates. When did you actually create the software? So this idea came about in 2005. This is like a long time ago. So I'm trying to think about 2005. This is when YouTube was coming about. What else was going around in 2005? This was very early, still very early of the internet, maybe a, half a decade after the, the dot-com boom. Yeah. No, the, <clears throat> the actual software and the idea for the software came to us in 2011, 2012. So uh, the consulting business has been around for about six years, and that's when we started working on it. The initial version of the software released internally to our clients in 2014. And then publicly, we went to private beta beginning of 2020. And then it was interesting because we're like, okay, let's put the software out there. Uh, let's put it publicly available to anybody who can subscribe. Uh, and that was in February of 2020. And in all honesty, we put it out there. And although we know marketing really well, we did not have the budget or the time or the effort, like I was like, well, the resources to say, you know what, let's market this. So we just put it out there. And we're like, what? We have an amazing email list. People know us, so we're active on LinkedIn. Let's just mention it a couple of times. In the span of 12 months, basically, since we've announced it, we had about a thousand customers who jumped and subscribed and are using the software. So th this year, we're like, you know what? It's probably worth investing a little bit more to tell people about the software. So it's been an incredible journey. One of the things that I really want to dig into that I really hope the listeners are getting is, well, first of all, I, I also want people to know how to spell fig pie. So if you can tell me how fig pie is spelled. So it's fig, the, the fruit, and pie, P-I-I. -I. So lots of times people tell me, it's like, why wasn't it, you know, P-I-E? And it's interesting because our methodology in, in helping people improve conversion rates, you plan, you implement, you improve. So that's how fig pie, F-I-G-P-I-I. That's how people can find FigPie. Nice. Plan, implement, improve. Very catchy. Yeah. I had this brilliant question and then it just totally left my head. <laughs> I, so, I hate that oh. because sometimes I'm like, I have two great questions. Yeah. Yes. I'm like, I forgot them both. So It just came back. <clears throat> so there's Go this little golden nugget in your story that I do want to highlight. And the thing is, when you were building out this software, so a lot of startup founders, what they'll do is they'll have this idea of this huge software that they want to create. And then they start thinking about the millions of dollars that they need. But you didn't do it that way. You actually had consulting clients and you had a very specific need that you had to solve right away. So because you had the need, because you had that client list, you actually went out and started automating a lot of processes that you were probably doing manually, correct? And then these automations is what really became what your application is today. But instead of thinking big pie in the sky, if we can use the pie word, you were actually, you already had the customers. You already had product market fit. You knew it was going to be something that you were going to use and it was born out of this way. So it wasn't this idea where it's going to be a billion dollar company. It was just like solving a very immediate solution. So when you were building out the software, can you tell me what your step-by-step -step method was? Were you trying to solve multiple problems at the same time or which problem did you start with? How did it kind of scale? interesting as well and i'll answer your question but let me tell you what's lots of, what lots of SaaS companies do is they build the software and then they start adding lots and lots of features correct it's always like i always give the example of microsoft excel the 2007 version somehow they decided in terms of selecting different font colors they used to have 64 colors which is plenty if you think about it they're like what do we do next what do we do next and they decided that people need more colors so they expanded 
from 64 colors to I think three or four million colors as if like us the end users really care for that and that's what we see like when we started building the software we're like okay so we have consultants who are working on projects consultants who are day-to-day trying you know, to solve this problem of how do you improve a website usability how do you improve a website conversions and we needed very specific functionality that for example if you're looking at heat maps well you need to you need to segment the data in a certain way where it's actually meaningful we don't want data just for the sake of data because if we just provide data for the sake of data guess what then the consultant is going to have to do this uh, take it and put it in a powerpoint and try and explain to the client but there's no good explanation so we're like let's just look for usable useful data and that was a guiding principle that we used we initially started with which is interesting is a testing version of the software so we have several modules so in a b testing basically let's say you have a website that gets 10,000 visitors and you're like what i think my homepage is not working all too well here is a better homepage, maybe a better image maybe a better headline maybe a better display of products traditionally what you do is you just put the new you put the new page on the website and you just pray that things will go well and that your sales will continue with a b testing we say you know what let's not do that let's try and remove this like you know luck factor out of the formula and if you have 10,000 visitors, let's show 5,000 visitors the old design and let's show 5,000 visitors the new design and let's compare the number of orders. That's how we started with the A-B testing because that's what most clients back in 2012, 2013 came to us for. As we did that, we're like, okay, maybe a bigger question is as I'm trying to come up with this other version of my website, a new version for the homepage, a new version for the About Us page, how do I actually decide what version is better? How do I know where there is a problem on, in, in my page? In order for us to answer that, we're like, okay, maybe we need to look at how visitors, any visitors coming to the website is interacting with the website. So this is when we start session recording. So basically what session recording does is as people navigating around the website, as they're moving their mouse, we're capturing that data, sending it to the server, and then allowing marketers to view it. Again, driven by need. So for us, I look at our consultants and I say, you know what? probably can watch about 300, 400 sessions and I feel bad for them if they have to do that. Some of our competitors, they're like, you know what, we will record 50,000 videos. And I'm like, hold on, who's going to sit there and watch 50,000 sessions? I feel bad. I already feel bad for the poor guy or girl who are going to sit and watch 500 session recordings. So we're like, okay, let's find something a bit more useful as opposed to just let's record as many sessions as we need. That's when the idea of heatmaps aggregates all these session recordings. And how do we find something useful? So instead of watching a single visitor interacting with the website, tell me how the 10,000 visitors who came to the website, how they interact with my homepage. That's how heat maps were, were born. And again, a couple of years ago, we looked at heat maps, we looked at session recordings, and we're like, okay, so this is data, it's beautiful, it looks pretty. But how do you actually make it more useful? That's when we talked to the guys at AWS at Amazon and we we're like, hey, can you guys help us figure this out? And they were very supportive. This is one of their amazing senior software architects who said, you know what? You can use machine learning to actually analyze visitor behavior on the website and give recommendations on how to improve the website. So it was natural progression. Every time we're like, how do we make this better in a more useful way? Not in let's just add more features to compete. Yeah, absolutely. That that example that you gave earlier with the Excel, like it's very incremental value. And, and and here's the thing. When you go out to your users and you ask them what features you want, and you just throw things in the air like, oh, do you want more colors? Of course, they're going to say yes. 
they're going to say yes but is it really helpful so you spent all this development time building something that's not useful in terms of a b testing one of the common things i also see with a lot of new marketers is they don't have enough data to actually be making enough decisions and then not only that when they're doing a b testing they're actually testing several different variables against several different variables so they're not getting an accurate test what kind of mistakes do you see amateurs making thinking that they can do this on you know by themselves without having the statistical background to actually do it properly so it's very funny i was talking to a startup that just started using figpy and one thing that we look at is the different companies that use figpy and within a month they launched 30 ab tests and i'm like wow that is impressive if within a month you launch that many ab tests and then i start looking at their ab tests and i i reached out to their CMO and I'm like, oh, can we talk? And he's like, she said, let me get also my CTO on a call. And we get on a call and I'm like, guys, you guys are doing very impressive. Two questions that I have for you is how are you coming up with the testing ideas and you have actually enough visitors? I'm like, what do you mean? Do I have enough visitors? I'm like, how many visitors are coming to the website? Because there's some statistical analysis in order for us to make a decision whether version A or version B of an AB test is successful. And they're like, oh, we have about 2,000 visitors. And I'm like, hold up, 2,000 visitors and you're launching 30 ages? They're like, yeah, what's wrong with that? But, well, at 2,000 visitors and you're getting about like, you know, 20, 30 conversions, it will take probably a couple of years before your A-B test concludes. And they're like, really? I'm like, yes. So it's sort of interesting. I would say some marketers go to the extreme where they're just very, they try and be very technical and they think that they need to have a PhD in statistics. But then you also have the other marketers who don't even understand the very basics of something statistical that, that you're doing. So that's one thing, like you need to look at your website and make sure that you actually have enough data to support meaningful A-B testing. That's one issue that I see a lot of people do. The other thing that sometimes I see people do is to also, I like to give two extremes. One is I'm going to test one element at a time. So I'm just changing a headline. I'm just changing an image. I'm just changing a button. And maybe testing becomes a very slow process. And then the other extreme where you're changing way too many things, which is fine, by the way, in some instances, Airbnb and eBay, they do that every once in a while where you're saying, you know what? I'm going to just start from scratch and I'm going to just throw a million things and this new version that we're doing, we don't know there's way too many things that we're changing, but if it wins against what we have originally or what we have currently on the website, that becomes our new baseline. Many different things and so many different schools that we can spend hours debating when it comes to improving conversion rates. And I would say like there is no right or wrong answer as long as you have a methodology, correct? You've thought through it as opposed to just randomly doing things and just throwing things at the wall and hoping something would stick. What are, so in terms of FigPipe, you had this, you actually started releasing it out to the public in February, 2020. And now you're diverting a few of your resources into marketing this thing. You have 1000 users. What are next steps for FigPipe? It's very interesting. So we are in a crowded space. It would have been absolutely amazing if I had released FigPipe when we actually built it back in 2012, 2013, 2014. However, and I add that to my list of stupid mistakes that, that I've done. And I always joke about it. I'm like, when you've run a business long enough, you have a running list of mistakes. And I'm like, you don't regret them, but you learn from them. 
So we're now in a crowded space and I'm like, okay, how do we stand out? Everybody nowadays, there's about 20 other uh, companies that do heat maps and they do session recording and you do, they do A-B testing. I'm like, well, how do we stand out? How are we different? And that's really drives all the decisions that we make when it comes to FigPy. So what we're focused on is saying, okay, how do we actually use machine learning to look at all the website visitor data and analyze it and give marketers the ability to make informed decisions, give them actually some insights of things that they need to change on the website. Uh, that's something that has not been done yet. And that is something that we've, we're testing right now. With We're testing with about 12 different companies. It's, it's The results have been very interesting where you look at, if you think about a website, let's say you're on an e-commerce website. I always like to give examples of an e-commerce website because everybody can relate to that. You have 100,000 visitors of those 2,000 place an order. So we can analyze the behavior of those visitors who place an order and say, what's okay. So what in that behavior can we learn to actually analyze, to actually impact the behavior of those who did not convert, uh, who did not buy? So that's really where I see FigPi is, is going. Okay, so FigPi is evolving more towards the machine learning side, aggregating a lot of this data that it's collecting to come up with insights that it could just spit out on its own. Exactly. That, that is the plan. It's funny talk about one of our marketing team. They, they put out a banner and they're like, the new AI. And I'm like, oh, there's no AI over here. He's like, but it's more catchy. I'm like, yeah, it is catchy, but it really uses machine learning. I was joking with the team and I told them, in the 60s, if you remember, or none of us, I wasn't born in the 60s, a little bit after that, but IBM came up with Big Blue, which is their chess algorithm. And at that point in time, everybody agreed that Big Blue is not AI. Fast forward to 2020, and lots of people throw around the term AI. They're like, oh, this is AI, that's AI. The reality of it, most of it is not AI. And by the standard of definition that, of, that we have nowadays of AI, Big Blue was actually AI, was advanced AI. Long story short, I was uh, starting with one story, end up with another story. But uh, what we're focused on is the machine learning aspect of helping marketers make more informed decisions. Okay, how, how would you actually define AI? Oh man, so AI in this case. So machine learning, you have specific patterns, correct? And you have a data set that you can train, but the, everything is already predefined for you and that's what machine learning is with ai no you have there's different types of ai but the actual machine is actually coming up with its own algorithm it's evolving it's learning new things versus in a machine learning everything is predefined there's a predefined set of what success is and predefined set of what the failure is and you're just sticking within within those parameters with ai no you're just opening this up google for example they use ai of how different search results appear and it's constantly evolving. It's evolving to the point that there's not a single person who really understands all the rules because the machine is constantly evolving, it's changing the rules, it's experimenting, it's setting new goals for itself. Okay, interesting. So machine learning is just like one part of AI and you're just specifying that you're just focused on the machine learning part. Exactly. The, the best example that I give, if you think cancer, correct? If whenever they, they take uh, x-rays of cancerous cells, you can tell, okay, if there's specific things that they can see, you can see in, in those in those images, you can say, okay, and if there's certain patterns that you can see, then that tells you that there's a cancerous cell, correct? So that's the initial set. And then you can, after you have that initial set, let's say you take 40 or 50 images, you give it to the machine and you say, okay, look for patterns. 
the machine understands those patterns and then you give it another thousand images and you say now run through those thousand images using what you've learned from the first 40 initial images can you find of those thousand which ones are cancerous and which was which ones are not so the machine runs looks for a pattern says okay now of those thousand i can tell x number of images have cancer x number of images don't have don't have cancer that's machine learning correct because we've already defined the rule and then you're using that rule to do the fur- uh, further analysis a lot different than ai all right Khaled. so we learned a little bit about the future of fig pie what's the future of Khaled sala in uh, oh, sala i'm, I'm probably uh, yeah that, that is a t- that is a tough one i joke sometimes of, of saying if you had told me back in 2000 that I would have my own business, I would have probably laughed because I haven't thought about that. Graduates of computer science from one of the top schools in the US, if you had told me that I would leave programming altogether, uh, I would have probably have laughed. At some point, I moved my whole family to Europe, lived there. If you had told me, if you had even mentioned, so we ended up moving to Turkey out of all places, and I'm not Turkish, lots of times people assume that. But if you had asked me back in, let's say, I don't know, 2008, 2010 to list the top 100 places I would live in, I don't think Turkey would have been one of them. So I've learned to plan things about a year and just run with the flow. That's what I, that's what I tell, whether it's my employees, whether my kids, whether my wife, you make the best out of every situation that, you know, with the cards that are dealt to you. We're trying to grow our consulting business. We love it. We try to grow our SaaS business and we love it as well. And then it's just, I think as long as you're having fun doing all of that, and then that, that doesn't mean that you don't have tough, tough days. Oh, definitely. We've had like, you know, some tough days, whether when it comes to consulting or when it comes to SaaS, but we're enjoying the journey. It's just, it feels as enriching us day in, day out. Enjoying the journey is what it's all about. Khalid, where can more people learn about FigPi? Where can more people learn about you? So I hang out on in the land of LinkedIn. I'm there and you just search for my name and you'll see me. I post regularly, engage in discussions and whatnot. And you can always find FigPi at the, the, the website, F-I-G-P-I, FigPi.com. And uh, I, I think that's the fastest way to get in touch with me is uh, through LinkedIn. Khaled, thank you so much for joining us on the show and for dropping so much knowledge because I think this is really going to help founders reframe how they think about growing their SaaS or growing out their business. So thank you for that. Guys, we will see you on the next episode.